Hey everybody, you're very welcome to a very special episode of the Asking for a Parent podcast. Phrases like, home is where the heart is, there's no place like home, and a roof over our head are phrases that we regularly use. But I wonder if we actually think about the meaning of these phrases in our sense of safety and containment. We've heard a lot in recent years about the growing homelessness crisis in Ireland and the recent rental crises that would suggest that our housing situation nationally is problematic. However, this is not the only housing crisis in our state at the moment. Many of you will be familiar with the mica crisis, where defective bricks, which were used to build homes some years ago, are now crumbling into dust. This has left whole communities in a state of despair and desperation. Although I was aware of the mica crisis, I was not overly informed about the stresses and strains that these incidents were having on the families involved until somebody reached out to me on social media to ask if there was something I could do to help. As I'm no builder and my DIY skills are abysmal, I figured what she was asking me was for some support for the children and families affected by the crisis. I didn't have a moment's hesitancy in offering support, whatever support I could, and it was decided that dedicating an episode of the Asking for a Parent podcast to these families affected by Micah would act as a way of communicating the struggles of these families and to be a resource for communities to access as they continue to search for a way to manage this crisis. So it gives me great pleasure to have a cross-section of guests on the podcast this week who are all familiar with this crisis. My first guest is Anne Owens, an advocate for the mental health needs of Micah families, Paddy Diver, homeowner, father and activist for Micah families, Angeline Kelly, a vice principal mother, homeowner, Aidan Gallagher, a homeowner and father of two, Eileen McLaughlin, homeowner and mother of three, and Roisin Gallagher, homeowner, secondary level teacher, mother of two, and an involvement in the IFAN MICA subgroup. This podcast has global audience to any listeners, so we might be aware that the story of MICA might be new to people. So if I can ask Anne to give us an account of how you all ended up talking to me on this podcast today. Anne, you're very welcome. Can you give us a, a walkthrough of how MICA happened and how... This has all come to be. Absolutely, Coleman. Thank you. The Mika campaign began at a humble kitchen table when myself and another affected homeowner just happened to have a chance meeting. But it was to take 11 years of relentless campaigning to bring the issue of defective concrete blocks literally from the kitchen table to the cabinet table. People ask me all the time, why did it take so long? But when I think back, I think 11 years ago, it was totally inconceivable that any local business could or would provide building blocks to their community, which were not fit for purpose, not as described, and not of merchantable quality. That the principle of caveat emptor or buyer beware could possibly apply when building or buying a new home. So the MICA Action Group itself, the formal MICA Action Group was founded in 2013 with the explicit objective of finding a resolution for MICA affected homeowners. It was becoming starkly clear that the issue of defective homes was extensive, both in numbers and in geographical spread. It was clear to campaigners like myself and others from the onset that our government had no appetite to fund a remediation scheme, despite the precedent being available in the Pyrite remediation scheme of 2013. This scheme had been a fully funded scheme. Government officials made it absolutely clear to campaigners that responsible parties must be made to pay 
for the Mika crisis, not the government. So homeowners had no choice and were forced to explore all options for compensation, including taking a legal case against their builders and the block providers, as seeking a claim through home bond or premier guarantee, making a claim through their home insurance policy, requesting assistance from mortgage providers. And these were all to come to a dead end and to cause homeowners extensive stress and distress and frustration. The legal cases which cost families thousands of euros and caused untold stress came to nothing. As the main supplier of defective blocks did not have insurance cover in place by their own admission. Home insurance policies did not cover nor ever covered defective materials. Mortgage providers, despite being stakeholders, totally abdicated responsibility. So what could homeowners do now? They had to finally turn to the government for funding for a redress scheme on the basis that all alternative options had now been exhausted and that in fact the government oversight and promiscuity, lack of regulation and enforcement of domestic and EU law had been at the very heart of systemic failure within the construction industry for over 35 years. So in 2016, the expert panel on concrete blocks was established by the Department of Housing to investigate the Mika and pyrite issues in Donegal and Mayo. This was followed in 2017 by the report of the expert panel, which was published and included eight recommendations, which the department pledged to actively progress with the relevant stakeholders, prioritizing the implementation of, rec of recommendations one and two. I'm listening to you there, Anne. I'm thinking 2013 was, I think, where you kind of started that story. Why is why is it this year? Has it kind of become much more to the forefront? Well, I think that we can thank uh, Mr. Paddy Dever for that, because in February of this year, Paddy, as an affected homeowner, just decided that enough was enough. He was looking at the local authority continuing to buy defective blocks from the very people who had sold them to all us affected homeowners for the last 35 years. He was looking at, at a housing estate in Cardona with 50 houses being built from the plan by Donegal County Council, who have already got 1,500 affected homes of their own. We have at least 6,500 homes affected privately. And Paddy was looking at this and looking at the main provider of concrete blocks rolling in there to Cardona into that new build site of 50 houses, the same lorries rolling in. Here we go again. And he just said, enough is enough. He put something up in social media and he said, all you um, keyboard warriors, can you come up here and can you assist me to stop a lorry from the main provider of building blocks going in to the, this social housing estate. And we said, yes, there was an immediate response. Myself and about 200 other people rushed to Paddy's aid, stood in front of that lorry in the pouring rain, and we refused to let that lorry 
enter the site. In addition to that, workers in Donegal County Council who are handling the materials of the main provider of concrete blocks went into the office in the council and said, we are refusing to handle this material. One worker, in fact, his house had already been demolished. And when was that? That was... That was February of this year. Okay. 2021. But obviously there's a long struggle going on before that. And am I right in saying that these defective blocks were identified and they were continued to be sold after that point? I can't even say to you now, Coleman, nor can anyone say that uh, that defective blocks are still not being allowed into the market or permitted into the market because there is no tracing system for defective blocks. So defective blocks can never be sourced back to their manufacturer. Wow. Again, no idea that that was the case. Roshin, if I can ask you the next question, how long are you in your house before you realise that something is wrong? Obviously, when you, you build your brand new house, you're delighted with it, it all looks good. What point do things start to go wrong? Well, I bought my home from Plan in 2005. And um, as much as there is a lot of talk and um, misinformation out there about most of the houses being Donegal mansions, my house is a semi-detached home. It's less than 1,600 square feet. And I live in an estate with 50 other houses. So I bought it in 2005. I bought it by myself about three or four years before I met my husband. So it was really hard. I was 25. I worked three jobs. I basically only slept in the house because I worked so much to pay the mortgage, which was probably double what it is right now. So I was so proud of myself and I couldn't believe that I was that I managed it and I did it. But in 2009, 2010, 2011, me and my father, at that stage I had met my husband, me and my father and my husband stood outside that house and looked at all these cracks that were appearing that hadn't uh, appeared before, you know, that you would assume they were settling cracks. Of course, we called them settling cracks for a long time and hoped that they were settling cracks and we kept putting everything to the back of our mind. So I would say I was in the house about six years when it started to become apparent. So it took me another few years before I actually accepted. And in about 2017, my father said to me, Roshina, it's time to contact Mag because it looked like you might have Mike a pet. And it was devastating. We can't explain to you the devastation, like thousands and thousands of people now and many, many more still to have that day of realisation that they have Micah. And that, that was my next question. I might ask Aidan this one. In terms of, how, we're, we're thinking about it, it's Donegal, North Mayo. Am I right in saying that that's the main area affected or is it more than that? Well, Micah and Pyrite, it's been detected in practically the entire West Coast now. I mean, the most affected area is Donegal and then, then Mayo. Especially in a show in North Donegal is one of the most affected areas. But it's right down all the way to Clare. There's obviously pirate issues in Minster and moving across the country. There was a there's a map that you can see on social media, which shows that quite a large percentage of the of the country actually has problems with either concrete products or concrete block products. So thousands of families. Really, it is again. Well, it's, you know, obviously Anne said an estimate there of like six and a half thousand properties just here in Donegal. I don't think we even know the scale because every day it increases. If I can ask maybe Angeline this one, the effect of that on a community, I mean, Roshan had that story of herself and her father looking at these settling cracks and realising, you know, this is a bigger problem. 
And, you know, you're just after buying your house, you're just settling in, you have huge mortgages, overheads. As each person starts to realize, you know, that you, I've got the same problem as you, or, or it becomes kind of this community issue. What's the impact on the community, Angeline? From oh, that my God, the impact is absolutely massive. For me personally, I have been living in the shadow of Micah for over 10 years now. Um, my children know nothing else because my children are 12, 11 and 10. I work in a school. And our school has 536 students. And out of the teaching staff, that's all that we've surveyed so far, 18 members of our staff are living in crumbling homes as we speak. Another nine have siblings who are living in crumbling homes. That might mean that it's their parents, it might be a young teacher, or it might mean a brother or a sister. So these are the people that are going into classrooms on a daily basis dealing with their own anxieties and then dealing with the anxieties that the children present to them. And it's like Micah is an app running in the background in schools. Nobody seems to get away from it. And it seems to be there continuously and constantly. For me personally, I mean, I know the stages of grief that I went through with, within my own home. I built my home in 2004. By 2008, I knew there was something wrong. I built it on my dad's farm, God rest him. He gives a sight. Uh, we built our houses and they were to be our dream homes. They were to be our forever homes. We put everything into them. And all of a sudden, you start seeing cracks inside and outside. The dampness is starting to seep in. The rain is seeping in on wet days. And there is no recourse for it. Some of our staff members are at the same stage as I am. I've gone through all the different stages of grief. You know, the start of it, this is not happening. Complete denial to trying to blame somebody. And, you know, I can tell you from the bottom of my heart, when I seen a particular lorry pass by on a daily basis as they delivered materials for our local county council that delivered the same materials for my home, I used to get a pain in my stomach. And I know that that was anxiety, right? But I had to learn to deal with that, move on and reach the stage where right now, all I want is a solution, a way forward, a way out of this, I've been trying to access the scheme now for over two years, and I've spent an awful lot of money in trying to do that, and I am no further forward. I don't have a solution yet. But the rest of my colleagues are at different stages of this uh, grief process, and it's shocking to watch them. Everybody's first reaction seems to be, well, at least nobody's ill. But then whenever you get past that stage and you realize this shouldn't happen, this is not normal, this is not acceptable, and this is not what I would classify as living your best life. To be living in the shadow of Mecca for at least 10 years for the majority of people here on this podcast. And it's shocking that we have to go through our daily lives like that. When you say nobody's ill, describing that kind of context of that anxiety feeling in the pit of your stomach when a lorry passes by, I mean, that's trauma. It's, Absolutely, it's, yeah. It's, there's no blood test for it, and you yeah. don't, you know, you scan scan it in an X-ray. But these things have an impact on our mental well-being, our psychological well-being, our hopes, our dreams. And in, in terms of in the school, what would you see as you try, talked about about it being kind of a constant app in the background? There's this hum of of Micah and that anxiety. What are children coming to you with, or what are you seeing in terms of over the last decade? Um, I remember the last day of the school year this year, uh, I spoke to a family that I knew their house was going to be demolished over the summer and they were teary as they were around the school. They were unsure if they were going to be registered in our school the following September. So they were saying their goodbyes 
right? They were saying their goodbyes unknowingly and they were uncertain that this was going to be their goodbyes. They weren't sure if they're going to be be able to find accommodation locally or if they were going to have to move out of this area. I can't tell you what the feeling was for me going back to school this September as I scrolled through my roles looking for those children to make sure they were still within this area. Some of these are doing their leaving cert this year. They're doing their leaving cert while they're living in mobile homes. And I mean, not shocking in this day and age. I mean, we're a developed country and we're one of the world's richest countries in the world. And this is actually happening as we speak. And there seems to be very, very little interventions that our government is planning to put in. On top of that, Dinnish is one of the most socially disadvantaged areas in the whole of Ireland. Right. We're socially and economically disadvantaged. And, you know, there's schools available, school completion funding, extra JESH funding. Uh, we get all these things to try and prop our students up to a level of uh, equality and equity. But, I mean, there's no funding is going to um, put a student that is doing their leaving cert in a mobile home on the same level as a student that is doing their leaving cert within a warm, comfortable home with the security of having maybe their own desk, continuous Wi-Fi, all the different requirements that our students actually need. And we can't be sure that we're going to be able to provide this for them. And again, I mean, we talk about the kind of the uncertainty of COVID for students over the last 18, 20 months. I mean, adding that on top of the uncertainty that you described, whether you're going to be around to enroll next year, the difficulties around, you know, whether your house is going to stay standing in the next number of months and things like that. It's a kind of a double fold on that. And if I can go to Paddy next, uh, Paddy, the the impact that you would see on families of all of this, and again, you know, credited with bringing this to the fore in earlier in 2020, what have you seen since or what are people telling you about the impact that it has had on the mental health of the community? The mental health of the community is it's heartbreaking to watch it. Hey, I be talking to people outside a the shop, they open up to you. They're actually breaking down in front of you. They're, they're crying outside a shop and they're telling you all their emotions and, and, and everything they're doing and how the government have let them down and how the scheme is so hard to get on. They've been told to fill out six to seven pages, change it onto a PDF form. You might get this. Then it gets sent back to you about four or five times. It's, it's driving their mental health to a different level of madness. Like an old an old age pensioner, I can hardly do computers. So she is not a hope of doing the computers, no harm to her. And she used to have her garden, like Mrs. Bouquet. Her garden was one of the most finest gardens out there. Now she doesn't even want to do the weeds. This summer she wouldn't even do her flowers or weeds or nothing. What's the point? In my house, my wife hasn't, she hasn't changed the floors. She hasn't bought a picture. And she is one of the most house proud women you'll ever meet. I haven't even bought a picture for her house. I haven't changed a chair and the furniture. There's chairs now that are kind of damaged. She wouldn't be bothered. She's lost hope in the house. Or children. My wee girl, I went up on it and, and found her crying because you don't realise when you're sitting in the kitchen, you're talking, you're talking about Mika, you're talking about where we're going to live. You think that they're playing on a tablet or they're, or they're watching TV, but they're listening. Mm. And then and they hear an odd argument. Where's the money going to come from? Where are we going to stay? I'm not going to stay. My wife wants us to try and use her money to live in a caravan. I said, I'm not living in a caravan and watching my children watch a house be crumble down to the ground. That'll take a piece of their soul away from them. As we can't do that. So the arguments kind of neck for attacking and trying to come up with solutions are coming and they're listening to them. They could even stand outside the door. One time I went out, my 12-year-old son was sitting at the stairs, listening, getting, trying to get information to see where we're going to live, what's going to happen. Is the roof going to fall down in the next storm? Because that's what they're hearing. They're hearing in the school. My, my daughter came back, she's eight. All the children, instead of playing hopscotch in, in school, they were marching around. What do we want? 100%. 
like it shouldn't be happening in the 24th century. It breaks my heart. Like my wee girl was upstairs crying, and when we got her consoled and got her got her down for months, she was living in her room and fear that the roof would fall down on her, and we didn't even know it. So we had to take her her, her single bed and and bring it into our room. Now she's living on there. And she's eight years of age. My house could be on demolition maybe in two years' time. So does she, do I let her live in my room for two years or am I supposed to, at times I don't know what to do to give her the security, yes, but by being overprotective, is, is, it, gonna, is it gonna harm her in the future? There's, a, there's so much questions about these children that we as parents don't know. It's like my son, he's Reese, 12 to 13. I went up to go to the toilet one night and I hear a movement in the room and I went down to the room and he's still awake. Two or three o'clock in the morning, he couldn't get to sleep because he heard a crack an hour and a half earlier. We massively, massively feel let down by our government, like totally. A total farce of what's going on. We just hope and pray that there's an end to this torture. And that's just been honest. You hit on a number of things there, Paddy, and if I could break them down a little bit. I mean, that idea of bureaucratic obstacles, uh, any parent who has a child with any sort of needs will describe that the procedures of form filling and PDFs and contributions are the biggest part of the headache in terms of trying to access resources. It's, it seems that the, the way in which the infrastructure is set up is to make you fail, you know, or to make you give up in that process. And it's devastating to hear that this is a similar case for yourselves. I mean, the issue around childhood is that the secure base is the core piece of from where children can begin to explore the world. So they have to have that secure base and that's usually the home. So this kind of idea that I have sanctuary or refuge and I can go and explore, experiment with, you know, play or I can experiment with anything, a misbehavior, whatever it might be. And I'll have that certainty of home available to me. When you remove that, then you, the child lives in a position of uncertainty. That's what anxiety is. Anxiety is the fear of the unknown. So the idea that in order to make children feel less anxious, we have to put in as many knowns as possible. And what seems to be in the situation where Micah is concerned is that there are no knowns. And, and again, there doesn't seem to be any direction from government or from anyone up above on when there, that timeline of knowns will exist. So I think what you have to do within your own environment, and again, this is easier said than done, is to try and create as many knowns as possible. And I would say to you, know, many children I've seen in therapy over the years, and the parents will say, you know, we have stresses and strains, but they don't know about it. You bring that child into the room and they know about it. You know, they are listening at the door. They are listening upstairs. They're talking about it amongst themselves. When they see parents who are kind of distressed about it, they maybe don't want to burden you with their worries as well, you know? And it's oftentimes, I don't know if there's a, an uncle or something like that, that could be brought in to kind of have a, a support who's, who's not involved, you know, somebody who could ask them how they're getting on and reassure them because it's almost like a death in the family. We, we really struggle to talk about bereavement because we don't want to make other people upset. We don't want to bring up the topic of trauma because we know mom gets upset when we talk about Micah or when I don't want to cause an argument between mom and dad by saying something about something where if you can have that non-affected other that can sometimes help in that situation. But it is, it's, it's an incredibly difficult situation when it's your home. You know, and I think that's that's the piece that I, I can't get over when I'm listening to these stories. Home is supposed to be the sanctuary place from school or the neighborhood or the community. If you're getting picked on, if you're getting uh, a hard time, if you're struggling with academics, if you're struggling with not making a sports team, your home is supposed to be that refuge. And I think the idea that it doesn't feel safe to be at home 
it's really, really difficult to try and create stability in that way. Roshin, can I come to you next? Well, I just wanted to add um, that it seems like such a helpful thing and a normal thing to bring somebody in that's not in the situation coming into the family to communicate to sort of maybe help the kids or talk to the kids or take them out of the situation or make them feel like they have someone else to talk to where they can burden them rather than burden their parents. But as an example, and I think it's important to point out for people listening, that aren't in the situation or that are over the rest of the country that aren't involved or don't know exactly what's going on. For example, in my family, I have a five-year-old and an eight-year-old and my husband has four siblings and I have five siblings. Four of my husband's siblings have Micah and four of my siblings have Micah or are affected, very closely affected in one way or another. So really, there are very limited amounts of people that that our children can even reach out to. That's how serious the situation is in our area. There's very, very few people that are actually not affected directly. So it's it's almost like generational and systemic trauma that everyone is in it i'm wondering whether and maybe angeline if there's somebody from the school point of view that could come in i I know you shared absolutely um i mean our school has two career guidance counselors and uh we have one hscl which is the homeschool community liaison coordinator and we have those because our this is what is needed but this was what was needed before micah you know Mm. uh to be perfectly honest with you our guidance counselors they're probably spending more time firefighting and counselling than they are in career guidance. So the reality of it is, is our schools are under-resourced. I mean, I don't know what resources are required to manage with a humanitarian crisis of this order. And like, I mean, even if we turn around and we look at our local community, there's fabulous community services like the IDP have recognised what is needed. They have uh, jumped the gun and are providing what our government should probably be insisting is available to everybody. And they have provided seminars for, uh, on anxiety. They have provided guidance and uh, they have various different other structures set up. This is only the beginning. I mean, uh, I might have a small number of families within our school community affected this year. I can assure you that next year we are going to have triple or even more than that amount of people that are going to be told their houses to be demolished. And I mean, you know, they come to you with questions and like I have the question myself, I know my house is to be demolished. My blocks are 14% mica. They crumble in my hand once the plaster is removed. That is what the roof is resting upon. My children are 12, 11 and 10. And they want to be part of this journey. They want to be part of the solution as well. And I try and paint a positive slant on this. But their next question to me is, right, we know our house is to be demolished. They want to be there for that moment when our house is actually demolished. So I'm not a, a psychologist or anything like that. I'm really struggling with that. Do I let them? come and watch the house tumble in front of their very eyes, is that going to bring them some kind of healing or is that going to harm and scar them for lives? I don't even know where I'm going with this. And, you know, I am looking for an answer here, you know, because uh, parents are asking us the same question. Should we allow them to watch this level of hardship. Again, there isn't a comparable example to the micro crisis where you can say, well, in Scotland, when they did this, this is what happened. Um, but 
the, uh, to tie in Paddy's issue about his daughter who who seeks the security of being in their room, but at what point do we you know, bring her out or what time do we pace it? How much is too much is the biggest mm. question. And again, in terms of involvement in grief, a bereavement, your house demolition will be in many ways a ceremonial fu- funeral of memory, of history, of all of that. And there are children who want to be part of that they want to see it they want to have that almost conceptual framework of it being over or being part of it there's other children who would be utterly allergic to that and would find that quite distressing so it will come down to each individual but where i would say is where we've had i've visited communities where maybe there's been a suicide pact of four or five young people dying at once and and you're going into the schools and communities to try and support them and, you know, many people will say, oh, we, we need someone from inside because no one from outside would understand what it's like in here. The children actually would say we actually welcome someone from outside coming in because for the support, it's almost better if someone doesn't know because they can come in and support us without the idea of. And it's not about baggage or it's not about but it's about the the burden. The burden needs to be shared where it's not going to cause distress to somebody else. And I think from the point of view of we can encourage communication, you can encourage talk, you can encourage activism, you can encourage um, involvement. And there will be some who'll be very good at that and they'll want a cause and they'll want to be involved in that way. And there are others who may not. And that's not a reflection of the teenager's commitment or desire. It's a reflection of their temperament and their personality. And some people are are just not that way inclined from that point of view. And I, I suppose it would be to protect the ones who just maybe don't want to witness the house being knocked, that that's maybe just too much for them. Um, and I think, you know, you tread carefully on that because sometimes the ceremonial piece can be really important, but it can almost be a pressure from mm. other young people as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I get a sense that it will might bring my children closure. Um, mm-hmm. I think they are reaching... They're, they're trying to find the end to this, as am I. And, uh, you know, my temptation is, so for you as an outsider, you did mention that it's quite often better for an outsider looking in. When you look at what my situation is, would you say that it's okay to allow them to watch the demolition of their home if that's what they are requesting? I, I would always be led by the youngster, you know, from the point of view of, I very rarely see a youngster carrying issues that they were told too much. See plenty who weren't told enough. Do you know what I mean? From yeah. the point of view of their involvement, you would see, say, for example, and again, I'm using the illness model here because it's all I have, but so mom has cancer and she doesn't tell them until she's three months out. And they're really angry and furious that they didn't know earlier because so they could have gotten used to that. But mom was doing that to protect them a little bit. Children who don't get to attend funerals get very upset about that opportunity being taken from them. Whereas the ones who are informed and told, of course, it's painful and of course, it's hurtful. But the acknowledgement of their importance of being there and the capacity for them to have a choice is really, really important. And so I'd be led by them in terms of what they feel they may want to do. And that may differ from sibling to sibling. And I would respect that issue. Getting back to Paddy's issue again about how do you move your child out? The, the idea around safety and protection, we always want to do that. So when your child comes into you and says, there's a monster under my bed, you know, the first thing you do is say, hop in here. So, and what we do is we, we, we get all get a night's sleep 
But then the next night they're in there again. And before you know it, you have a child sleeping in the bed with you. The issue then is, you know, is that the right thing to do? Well, the books would say it's not. The book is, would say go back in and look under the bed and say there's no monster under your bed and you can do this. And I believe that you can stay this and you're strong enough and you're able enough and come almost reassuring the child that message that you've got this and that that is the the textbook way of managing it. That said, you know, when you see a child of yours who's upset and feeling unsafe, the paternal or maternal instinct is to try and provide that sense of safety as, as best we can. But I think at some point there is that need to kind of wean them back into their own independence. And it is about, you know, it's not about you can't stay in here anymore. It's about I believe you can stay in there. You know, so it's about inflating them as opposed to it being something to do with your annoyance or deflation that you can't sleep because she's making too much noise anymore. You know, so she's not getting exiled. She's getting encouraged. Again, all of these solutions will be idealistic from the point of view of because there aren't perfect answers. But this is what this is what we believe helps and what we believe works. Aidan, did you have something to say there? Well, I have my, both my children have special needs. Uh, my son, he is on the autism spectrum and he has ADHD and my daughter has Down syndrome. And uh, they would have quite significant speech and language delay. They can't speak up to a point, but they can't converse, you know, and uh, they, they, they just don't have that capability yet. You know? And obviously we work on it all the time in speech and language therapy and stuff. One of the most difficult things that we would have as a family trying to explain these concepts because it's happening to them. Like our house will be demolished. We've, and we're approved on the scheme for a demolition. And uh, eventually you know, their rooms will be demolished. And yeah, and we're going to move on to a mobile home. I've actually got the mobile home already. I'm trying to prepare my son. Uh, anyone who experienced autism knows one of the great traits is the, the, the difficulty with change mm. and the requirement for a structure in your life. And uh, this structure has been destroyed for us. You know, and but the ability to explain it to them and to my daughter in a language that they can understand is extremely difficult. You try to compress very, very difficult concepts of destruction mm. and loss mm. to, to children. Where, and, and because there's no comeback, my son could tell me what he needs. But if I ask him how he feels, mm. he can't explain it to me. Mm. And you know, everyone was talking about the anxiety. You, know, you would see a kid where they cannot control their emotion because they have no way to process it. They can't explain their fears to you. They can't explain their, their anger to you. So they explode. So you, they bite. They hit you. They cry uncontrollably. These things happen. And they happen to all children. All children do it. But there's usually a way that you can express this, especially as a child gets older. And one of the big problems that we would have would be the fact that there is, at this moment, no way to truly know how much he knows or how much she knows. Mm. And to be able to explain some of these concepts to her and him, no, so we would be, I mean, this is a thing that we, we would struggle with greatly. Any advice that you might have on sort of bringing some of these topics to, to kids who have these sorts of difficulties would be great. It's it's the greatest challenge, Aidan, is language. And I, I think we believe that where language fails, behavior takes over. So if I don't have the words to say how I feel, I will express it through uh a shout or a bite or a hit or a roar. And so the idea is to, to try and create a space for language to exist. If, if the language isn't there, children feel, they think, and they do. Right. And I suppose what we need to be is that thinking part, you know, and again, trying to do that with 
through sensory needs, through stories, through support, try, you know, alternatives to language. And again, whether that's through music, through drawing, through tangible, physical things, whether it's, you know, anything that offers them support. But the idea of transition will always be difficult for somebody with uh, any sort of uh, additional needs because they thrive on structure, reliability and predictability. And so when that isn't there, it creates, you know, whatever degree of uncertainty may cause for you or I, for them, there's a whole different, it has a whole different meaning for them. And so transition needs to be integrated, needs to be slow if possible and, and kind of, you know, but you're describing moving into a mobile home from a home that is going to be challenging without a doubt. It's trying to make the experience of home as familiar as possible for them. You know what I mean? In terms of, although the, the space and things will be different, it's trying to create as many consistencies and regularities as they can, whether they attend school or if they have exercises and activities that they do, that you keep those going no matter what the busyness is. You know, sometimes when we're doing those changes, we change everything all, all at once. But I think from my point of view, the language is is one way of communicating and there are other ways and that might be through touch through reassurance through support through stories it goes back to the point i was saying about angeline how much is too much we can over prepare children for change you know if you're talking about it endlessly and you're building it up to something then you almost create a bigger issue than it is if you try and ambush children with change by not telling them about it and not trying to get the the, the kind of build up to it what you'll get is is a kind of a, a knee jerk reaction to that. And so from the point of view, it is good. It gets back to that pacing issue as well and almost being led by them, you know, how much they can manage and almost being able to to gauge their sense of being overwhelmed. And I tell you, Aiden, the, the, this is the unsatisfactory piece of advice. It's trial and error. You may expect too much of them one day and they may get overwhelmed and that then you'll know for the next day that maybe less is more uh, and trying to do that as best as possible. I wish I had a five-step plan to how to do that. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't exist. But it is about, there's five things that we all need. The first is a sense of safety, right? So first and foremost, that sense of safety. The second is structure. So if a child is struggling with transition, you structure the change that it's going to be a little bit at a time and moving things gradually in. The third one is involvement. So in, it goes back to Angeline's point, involved as much as they can manage, but not overwhelming them and overburdening them and not ambushing them to the point of that. And then support, obviously, as much as you can. And again, so difficult when you have your own stresses and strains as a family, the whole system is under pressure when you're undergoing a move like that, trying to be as supportive as possible for them. And the last one is validation. You know, their feelings, although they seem over the top or they may seem disproportionate to the event. They're real. The upset is real. I'd say to you that oftentimes we underestimate the degree to which children feel things, even though they don't have the language, they're picking it up. But we also underestimate their ability to cope and their resilience and the way in which they come through things. And the amount of times we anticipate a change with such dread and then we find out they were really actually really good in that. They managed that really well. It doesn't feel like that at the time when you're going through it, but on reflection, you go, actually, that was that went better than I thought it would. And as they get older and as they get a little bit more mature, a little bit more wise, 
you're hoping that their coping skills would increase as well. But as much as safety, structure, try and be as containing as possible, involve them as much as you can, but just buckets and buckets of support is all I can say. And again, trying to keep the things that they do regularly, regular, you know, in, 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 in that their other activities that they do to try and keep that as predictable and consistent as possible. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, but, but that's one of the reasons why we were doing what we we're doing. I, I'm, we're trying to introduce this concept over a period of time that it isn't, mm. that it's going to be there. It's going to be part of the place. Mm. We're going to go in and out and we're going to get used to it. And then maybe when things are hooked up, you might go in and sleep for a night and then come back. Exactly. And we'll, we'll try and, and we might move some toys across or you know, move stuff over in time. I mean, these are, these are plans that we were trying to put on the place. That's one of the reasons why I suppose we, we jumped the gun with the where with the, the you know obviously I mean it's one of those things where people when you have kids uh they perhaps don't have the quite the understanding to you of danger and stuff like mm. this and but have you know required a certain amount of support. Uh you know obviously where we live, this is all my children have ever known, same as everybody else. You know, I mean we've been mm. we've been here since 2010, 2011. 2011 we moved on. So mm. both my children were born here. Mm. And uh they know this and they know the garden and you have the gates and it's safe and you know you have relative security that'd be one of the reasons why you know, we, we you know why we stayed here you know really too like you know rather than attempted to move somewhere else because there is a level of security here mm. that i can provide and it doesn't a huge change so i mean this was just one of the things that we obviously we're struggling with obviously but we're trying to figure the best way forward I think you'll find that you didn't jump the gun, but you actually invested wisely. I think that's a huge benefit to have that there, you know, for them to become familiar with as the change in and your plan about, you know, going over, staying a night here, that brilliant. If you can do that, that's the best way of getting the best outcome for sure. Anne. Yes. No, I wanted to just say that I have been told many, many times that the mica issue has caused, you know, difficulties in marriages. But I'm just thinking, you know, of how difficult that must be for children while all that aggro is going on and children are sensing that their mum and dad's marriage is possibly on the rocks and that it could be leading to separation or divorce because I know it has happened. And, you know, I'm just thinking, I mean, how the heck do you deal with that? That must be an ultra difficult one for, for parents. Yeah, I was thinking about that as you were describing it. I mean, the, the three major life events are a death, a divorce and a house move. And the, in many ways, this has all three as part of that one cocktail. The parental stress and argument and disagreement, you know, when if the arguments are about whether we'll have a lasagna or a bolognese or whether we stay or move, they're massively different connotations to those discussions. But for children are concerned, the idea of, you know, not triangulating them in the argument is the key piece. You know, it's not about the thing that children find hardest is picking sides or having to be responsible for sharing the attention equally, right? Every family is an attention economy, right? So the attention goes to certain people at certain times. And, you know, in many ways, that's what we're all vying for. And, and you know, it's not attention seeking behavior, it's relationship seeking behavior. So you're trying to create relationships and where children feel that they are missing out on visibility or attention, they will try and find a way of achieving it through misbehavior or through uh, almost illness or sickness or, you know, 
trying to be difficult or they'll become uber independent and they'll just switch off and disconnect from their families. So the idea here is that, you know, the attention economy has to be evenly as evenly dished out as possible and that the child doesn't feel burdened by the responsibility. So you don't want mum telling tales about dad and dad telling tales about mum and asking child to to pick a side. That is the bit that they find the most stressful of all those things. The issue around telling a child that we've got this as the adults in the room, even if you don't feel like you have it, it's such an important message for children to get. You know, the idea that no matter what happens, we've got this. And I always use the example of the roller coaster. You know, if you're sitting beside your child in a roller coaster and they're nervous and you're nervous and they say to you, I'm scared, don't tell them it's going to be fine because it's not. There's going to be rips and downs and you're going to be terrified and you don't know that. And if you give them it's going to be fine and it isn't, they lose their trust in you. So what you say is, I don't know what's up here. I could get scared and you could get scared. But whatever happens, we are in this together and we will huddle in here and we will get through it. And no matter what happens, I'm here for you. My availability is all I can offer, but it's all that you need. And it's that sense of being an, it's an overused phrase in the last 20 months that the in us together business, but it is about, we've got this. And as the adults in the room, we have to have it. You know what I mean? And what I'd say is, you know, in terms of when people come with anxiety for therapy, anxious people do two things. They overestimate the challenge and they underestimate their own ability. And as an adult in the room, what you've got to do is put the challenge in perspective and nurture their sense of their own ability. You know, it's about saying, yes, this is massive. This is really difficult, but it's not big. It's not too big for us. We've got this. We'll get through it and we will do this. And you will get through it too. And nurturing their own sense of ability. A child needs to hear, I believe in you. Not you come in here and I'll do it for you or not, you know, you know, nothing bad will happen. It's I believe in your ability to manage, to get through and to cope with it. And you point out the things that, why you believe that because they're strong because they're clever because they're brave because they have courage these are the things that children need to hear more and more especially in times of crisis is that the internal variable what is inside you is enough um and it's enough to manage the carnage that's outside you if that makes any sense you know we talk about resilience and we talk about children who overcome adversity like resilience isn't made from adversity. You don't have a tough life and you become a tough person. That's not how it works. Resilience is about having a good relationship with yourself where you have belief, self-worth and self-value. And those are the three things that the children need more than anything to get through a crisis. It's the relationship they have with themselves. Almost that's the one you have to invest in. Um, If you have a good relationship with yourself, you can tend to manage most things. It makes you resilient. But if a child is feeling, you know, overburdened, overwhelmed, or if they're feeling dragged from one parent to another, or if they feel that they're the kind of point in the triangle at, at the peak and they're feeling under pressure, they're, they're going to just lack their own sense of ability, worth and value. And that's what has to be avoided, if that makes sense. But that roller coaster of whatever happens up here, we've got this. Uh, I think that's a really crucial message, especially during turbulence or uncertainty or trauma. Do you know? Eileen, how are things with you? How, how is the situation of Micah affecting the families that you know, or what are um, the issues coming up around your area? 
Yeah, well, we um, we built our house in 2005 and then we got married in 2006 and moved in. So it was really, I say, 10 years before we kind of admitted that we had at Micah, we just thought it was cracks. But we, I think that the kids are on board with us. You know, we, we've taken them to the protests and, you know, I can relate to what Angelina said. I can relate to what Aidan said, you know, that we have now, we have bought a caravan, but we were a bit adventurous. We're thinking, no, it's not going to be practical. So we'll use that for storage. Uh, we're now in the process of buying a mobile home. Now, where we're putting it, it's very close to the house. And I was worried about the kids having to watch the demolished. But I think it is all part of, you know, they have to go through it. We can't protect them from it. It's it's here, you know, like it's, it's staring them in the face. Our little girl, um, she's almost six and she's sharing a room with her two-year-old. And we we kind of thought, are we doing right? Because when she started school, obviously then he was wakening her up and she was tired. You know, but it's, it's just the sacrifices like that. But we we just keep saying to them, you know, we include them. You know, we keep saying to them, you know, everybody else is going through this. We don't know if we're doing right or wrong or not. Yeah, the, the six and two year old, I, I I wouldn't worry about that at all. You know, uh, families yeah. grew up with 10 in a room and they oh, came I know, through it. Okay. I know. But I would say to you is, and it gets gets back to that point about you know the demolition and the the end of something and whether that mm. will be traumatic. The trauma tends to come from what follows that. Right. So the issue is if you have the end of an era. And the era that follows is full of memories and, you know, good things that will be seen as a transition or a turning point where things got better, even though it's a sad point, obviously a devastating point when you leave a community that you love or a school that you love or you leave friends. But what will determine whether that was a good or bad experience is what follows. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. if you have the ability and the, the, the circumstances to be able to enjoy what follows the end of that, that will determine how that will be remembered. You know, if you move from one community to an, an awful community, you'll lament leaving the one that was good because you went to somewhere bad. If you leave a good place and go to a better place, you know, the, the idea is that the trauma is determined by what is lost and what determines what is lost is what follows. The investment is in what we, where the next chapter is because that's yeah. the one that will determine how that will be experienced. Yeah. Angeline? Yeah. And what about the child? Like, I mean, some people are going to experience the demolition of their home and they're moving on to the next phase of their life, whether it is starting college, getting a job, but they might be moving out of the family home as such. I mean, what can you do to reconnect those uh, wanes? I mean, are they going to feel part of the family home? Are they are they going to be, have any connection to the, what I'm going to call the new house as such? Or are they just going to be disjointed and dislocated from their family home forever as a result of that? You know, what if somebody is not going to really get the opportunity to uh, call fixed up house their home? Yeah, again, I, I think we oftentimes mistake unfamiliar for wrong. Right. Uh, I have a young lad that every time he goes to the shoe shop, he says they don't feel right. Right. The shoes are perfect. They just don't feel like the tattered pair that he has and has molded around his shoe for the last six months. So the issue is that the unfamiliar doesn't have to be wrong. The unfamiliar just has to be unfamiliar for a while, you know, and then it becomes familiar. So the idea of if I 
left for college and my house was demolished in that transition. Let's imagine that I moved to Dublin or I moved somewhere else. And when I come back, I come back to a different house or a different home or a different environment. I'm just creating a different relationship. It'll be unfamiliar because it won't be the same, but it doesn't have to be different. I oftentimes get asked this question around where maybe a parent dies and they're heading into the first Christmas. A parent was only asking me this recently and the dad used to always take them for the Christmas tree and to pick to pick the Christmas tree and he's not there this year. And mum was wondering, you know, what will I do? Will I go myself or will I just get the Christmas tree and bring it home? Or And what you're doing is you're creating new memories. They're different and they're unfamiliar. Of course they are. It doesn't have to be better or worse. You know, the idea is that the biggest enemy in any of this, and again, I, I, I hope I don't sound lib, but hopelessness is the piece that you've got to, from an emotional and psychological point of view, defend against. Of course, there'll be moments where you'll feel hopeless. There's moments where you'll be despair. There's moments where you'll hit a point where I can't see an out here. The hopelessness is is the bit that really gets in on us. It is that it, the longer that stays kind of corrosive in our own emotional well-being, it really has, we have to find hope somewhere. And I know that, and I, I've no idea what it's like to be in your circumstances. I can't even imagine what it would be like. But if I can give you the advice of trying to hold on to the hope, whether it's the next march or whether it's the next you know decision or whether it's the next chapter in your life, you have to have that. Despair is the enemy, you know, again, and, and it's not to say that you won't feel that from time to time, but it is about trying to, to kind of come out of it. And I would always say, you know, where, where we're at our safest is in the middle. Every person who comes to see me for ther- therapy or treatment is they're either doing too much of something or too little, right? So if you gauge it out of 10, one, two, three, and eight, nine, 10 are the danger areas, Four to seven is where we need to be. And it is it's the safest. And I, I, I hate the fact that the idea of the word average has become bad thing. Average is amazing. Like, thank God for average, only for it. So when you find yourself in the extremes of eight, nine, 10, whether it's despair or frustration or anger or whatever it is, just try and get down to that seven. If you're in the one, two and three, you're unmotivated. You've lost all hope. You're not you know, feeling up to anything. Trying to get that up towards the three or four is crucially important. It's the longer you stay in the one, two, three, and the eight, nine, ten that will create the issue. Almost when we're taking a temperature check on how we're feeling physically over the last 20 months, we have to take a mental health check and look at your children. See, where are they in terms of one, two, three, eight, nine, ten? And, and if you can find that way to the middle and spend as much time as possible in the middle or as least time in the one, two, threes, and eight, nine, ten. Sorry, Aiden. And that was one thing I'd like to say too, was, uh, you know, and it's one way for, for me personally and for my wife too, is that you know, thank God for children sometimes in this case, you know what I mean? Because this is a terrible thing. This is terrible as happening to anybody. And whether you're like Patty the old day pensioner who's basically had their retirement ruined or you're uh, starting out in life or you're in your mid, you're from mid-40s like I am, you're sitting there with two children now who they're, they are my focus. They've always been my focus since they came under my word, you know. So I've never got too too low with what's going on or too high because they've always brought me back to the middle. Uh, this would obviously just be my sort of point of view. Maybe maybe it is too when you have kids who special needs and they need that wee bit extra that they take you away from obsessing and getting too worried about stuff because their, their needs, they bring you back into the middle. 
it would always be one of the things that, that I sometimes thank God that they were here just so that I wouldn't be obsessed about it, you know, because mm. I know I think if, I, if they weren't here, I would be obsessed because <laughs> I know, know in my own mind, you know, and that the, they're almost, the, I mean, and I'm worried about all the things that will happen and what's going to happen to them, but I'm, I'm so grateful that they're here just in order to give me that ability to think about something else and bring me to them a little bit. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think from the point of view of if we ask people, adults who are struggling with trauma or bereavement, many times they will say, you know, my my source of joy is my children, the innocence of them or, you know, the fact that they I have them. I have to be responsible for them as well. And it almost keeps us on track. You know, you know, I, I can't fall apart because they need me almost that that becomes almost a motivating factor. Eileen? Yeah, I was just thinking of an idea. Like I've heard of another house that they were saying that they were going to get the the child to like hit the walls and kind of tumble it and you know draw all over it. But for me personally, I have this idea in my head that you know when it comes to the crunch of demolish, that I'm going to take the kids into the the room and each room and just say thank you, you know, like a gratitude because you know to be thankful for the home that we've had. It's funny Angelina was saying there that you know when the teenagers move on but I think you know all their familiar stuff you know like as if they're going to college but all the familiar stuff like we're going to bring stuff obviously back into the house you know all your contents but you know we're going to like upcycle furniture it's just trying to bring the old into the new like I know like when I was first pregnant with our first the nursery we have like a big tall like it's all done up a big tall giraffe and trees it's like it's like light wood we're going to actually take them into the new house and put them on different walls, you know, kind of in behind, you know, studded walls. So it's just, it's just to me, it's kind of blending it all in rather than, as you say, just, but it's, no. you know, it's, it's kind of like a sense of gratitude, you know, and, you know, bringing, bringing them forward into the new house, you know, some of the old stuff. And again, I, I just reminded of a, a research paper that was done on the California house fires, you know, where there was homes were destroyed in, in the house fires and their belongings and things were gone. And they described the kind of the, the recovery from that. And it was absolutely individual that some people had just tried to build replicas of the house that they had in order to make it as the same as possible. And others had kind of gone for a completely you know, new, fresh start, whatever the case may be. And it was absolutely individual in terms of the therapeutic value of it, you know, and they had interestingly, some had replicated and then diversified. So they had recreated the home that they had. And then it went, no, we we can't recollect that. And in terms of children, you know, going back to the site where the, the fires had happened. Some children wanted to do that, others didn't. It's about giving them that choice. But I don't, I think children have to express anger and they have to be allowed to be angry with things that are happening. Whether you can manufacture anger, I'm not entirely sure. I think it probably comes more spontaneously around that. And it's like activism. You know, activism can be a great channel for frustration or anger and people find that useful. Other people may not. They might find a run helps or, you know, uh, watching a violent movie or playing a video game, whatever it might be, has to be individual. It's not that none of the feelings are acceptable, but they just have to find acceptable ways of managing them, that it doesn't get in on top of them, if that makes sense. But but yeah, I think, you know, whether you wish to to replicate or diversify would be absolutely down to yourself. And again, might be down to your children as well. And maybe giving them a choice in what they can do 
when that day happens, um, would be involving them in a way that that would be helpful for them, if that makes sense. Roisin, had you any thoughts or worries about things from the, the children's perspective? Well, as far as the, my parenting goes and me and Sean together dealing with it, it's a bit like um, Eileen, we're trying to be positive and show them the positive side of it. So, I mean, Blake loves or Blake sleeps in the box room of our semi-detached house. So he he would really like a wee bit of a bigger bedroom. And I said, yeah, we'll make that happen. It's not going to go outside our footprint or it's not going to cost any more money. It's just going to give him a wee bit of a bigger bedroom and that is okay. So he's really looking forward to that. And that's the way we're looking at it. We let them get chalk and we're going to get them painting. You know, it's something you would never let your children do is paint the outside of your house after you look after it so well. And I would be very house proud as well. But of course, that's gone too, as Paddy was saying. But we let them do rainbows and and butterflies and pictures on the walls outside and they love that so we're going to try and make it as positive as possible but as far as an, being an educator and working with teens at second level I find it really concerning where they are mentioning it in school like I, I am a substitute teacher although I'm teaching 16 years and I, this year I didn't get the first call until almost October and I suppose so much had happened since they left at the end of May and the talk of Micah is huge now compared to when, when they left at the end of May. And so it just so happened that the first class I was subbing was CSPE. The next class was English and the and the subjects that came up, the, the work that was left for me to deliver in those classes was so strange. The first one was CSP, where I had to explain to second years about uh, a democracy, what a democracy is, and of course about Ireland and, and how it's run. And so we weren't in the lesson maybe seven or eight minutes when Micah came up. The next lesson was English, where you would never really talk about, you would never mention Micah, or that would never come up, or you would never talk about politics. But the comprehension that we were doing was about um, their thoughts on young teenagers being able to vote, being given a vote. So of course, Micah came up in the conversation. I didn't bring it up because I'm afraid to bring it up. And so the next English lesson, it was like rolling on from one thing to the other. And I think at that stage as well, I was very involved in the campaign and I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my God, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this school year. I don't know if I can even cope with it myself. But the next one was a Philip Larkin poem about um, a really sad poem about leaving a home. And the last person that ever leaves a home after, say, even 100 years, like generation after generation, and then the home eventually becoming derelict and, you know, a ruin. So uh, then Micah came up in that class as well. So it's in their thoughts all the time. I've had students bring it up just in random classes for no reason, and they want to talk about it. But as educators, we don't know, should we bring it up? Should we talk about it? Is it okay to talk about it? Do we upset the people that don't want to talk about it if we do talk about it with the students that need support? So we're in a real catch-22 and we just don't know how to handle it. Well, I've developed a program, like a framework for a program for second level schools. And I am talking to several different, um, like Angeline has seen it and some principals and some people in the ETB and the initial development of Denise has seen it and stuff so but these things happen very slowly and we are in the classroom every single day so what do we do in the meantime it's difficult in different situations and different areas are diff more difficult than others as well 
where there's students we can't bring it up in front of and other students that really need the support. So I would like to ask you, Coleman, how do we as educators deal with our vulnerable children in the classroom when they bring it up? What do we do? I think, I think it has to be almost, if we take it like a menu of, of possibility where you opt in or opt out, because there are children who are going to be, you know, up to the eyeballs in MICA and just they, they want some school to be something different, to not have that narrative kind of contaminate that experience. There are other children who may feel that school is the place where they can have the freedom to discuss it. Maybe that maybe at home that isn't necessarily the case and they need to be given that outlet as well. But I would try and have it as an, an opt in, opt out issue, because uh, when we are asked, do we want to do something, we engage with it much better than if we're told to do it. You know, it's simply human nature, you know, from the point of view of if you need to process this, we need to give you a space to be able to do that. We should never encourage silence. We should never encourage suppression and we should never encourage that someone's opinions or views isn't valuable or heard. But we also need to respect the idea that distraction works better for others. Mental health is the science of subjectivity. One man's rubbish is another man's treasure. And so from the point of view of the idea of, you know, I, I'm really against kind of well-being programs. So you go, right, everyone do mindfulness, right? I can't do mindfulness. I find it incredibly agitating. It's great for other people, but it's not for me. I'd much prefer to do, I'm a, uh, an active relaxer. So running around a tag rugby field, not thinking about life is my relaxation. And so we have to find ways in which there is a menu of option for youngsters to be able to, to opt in and opt out. In terms of the process, I think the idea that if they want to talk about it and want to engage in it, we have to kind of, again, maybe channel that a little bit so that it's productive. You know, there is what we describe as kind of empty rumination where you're just going over and over and over and over and over something again and again and again. It doesn't feel like you're getting any momentum and traction from it and it can just be obsessive. The idea is that it should channel something to alleviate a stress, not to create one. Do you know what I mean? And so if you're finding that the conversations in the class, people are coming out of it going, I'm glad I got that off my chest. That was really useful. It's a massively important use of an hour. If they're coming out going, oh, I can't get that out of my head now and that's going to keep me up tonight. That's not either. And we had this issue with primary school children in schools. We said, you know, if you don't wash your hands, you're going to give someone the coronavirus. So we had kids staying up till four in the morning, stressing about, you know, killing granny, you know, and that sort of stuff. So we have to be very careful about messaging that they'll all pick them up differently. But I, I'd be saying a menu of option, opt in, opt out and give them that choice. Yes, Paddy. Yeah, but I see, I see where Roisin's coming from. But the problem that I have was that there's like, see the common sense with the education side of stuff for children. How is she supposed to, there's so many children there that want to talk about it and she's talking to help. And then there could just be one person in that class that does not want to hear about it. It's the last thing they want to hear about them going to school. But like, I mean, it's an education board. That's just going on for 10 years now. But the common sense in the schools would drive you mad because like, they should have an open, like, like an AA meeting. Anybody wants to come and there's a class for mega students. You talk and they can, and they can bounce things off. But like, the education board would drive you mad sometimes. My young fellow, he started school when he was four. He left at 21. And he knew everything about X, Y, and Z, but he didn't know how to use a mission tape. You know, the education board would drive you mad sometimes. Mm. And it's, they, they, should, they should up their game and come up with suggestions. like. Yeah, and then again, I, I, I've been openly critical of well-being programs where I think there's 
there's a skill set that we need to be teaching young people to manage and to, you know, like that AA meeting model. You know, if you had that as an option for young people to go to, the person who doesn't want to go to that has an option to do something else instead. It, it offers that uniqueness. But the the issue around practicality and skill, we can't control the things that happen in our lives. There's none of us can control that. All that we can control is our reaction and response to it. And each of those reactions and responses will be different. It doesn't mean that one is right and one is wrong. It's just that they suit us differently. And so the program in school, if I was saying to you, Roshin, is to try and find out what that is, what works for you, and then try and tailor make an option for that person. So if we take kids sport, right, kids sport is incredibly competitive. Once they get to under 11, you're either training twice a week and match at the weekend or you don't play at all. So there's no room for social sport in children. You know, so 14 year olds don't run around a pitch unless they want to win medals and prizes. We need to have an option for those kids who are not competitive to be able to have activity and exercise and movement without the competitive streak. And competition drives children out of sport, if that makes any sense. So exactly what, what we're trying to say about the wellbeing program is having a menu of options. Do you want to go in and talk about this in an AA manner? Do you want to go in and learn more about activism and how to do that? Or do you want something completely different? And I think offering that three-strand model allows you to cater for each child's different need rather than a pro forma way of this is how we fix Micah anxiety. We send everyone into mindfulness. You send the whole year into mindfulness, 50% of them will come out going, that was amazing. I feel really great. And 50 of them will agitate it as hell saying, I'm not going into that again. So I think it's options. That's the key. Angeline? You mentioned there about opt-in and opt-out and distraction working better for some. Aidan also mentioned the idea of obsession and uh, somebody else mentioned that it can get in on us, right? And we all know that, that it can get in on us as adults and it does get in on our children as well. I mean, in this age of social media, we as people that want the world to know about our plight are encouraging uh, so much media attention and social media, like from TikTok to Instagram to Facebook to Twitter, it's continuous for our children. They are seeing um, the various different families' struggles. They're watching it continuously. Like, what can we do as families to give them, uh, I'm going to call it a micro break, right? And I remember I tried to do this during the summer and we booked um, a campsite and uh, it was a pod size of uh, an average person's garden shed. And we arrived down in it. And my 10-year-old landed in and lay down on what appeared to be the size of a sauna. And that was going to be our accommodation for the week. And he looked up and he says, God Almighty, Mommy, this is really small, but at least it doesn't have mica. So even in all of our attempts at trying to get away from the mica conversations, we were in a complete different county. Sun was shining. The topic of conversation, instant. And we'd no, we, we'd no internet connection for this week as well was the other side of it. And that was purposefully done. But I mean, getting away from that uh, make app that I call it, that is constantly running in the background and it's constantly on our minds is really difficult, Coleman. It's mm. not that simple. And it's not that simple for our children either who are, you know, for me, I can say, are obsessed with uh, engaging with social media. Like, mm. What can we do? To, to distract them. Yeah, again, the social media piece is it's 
it's not bad technology, it's bad usage. So we have to work with the user. And the difficulty with that is that what you have to do is regulate your own desire, right? So the idea, if you took all the bad stuff out of the internet, took away the pornography, took away the cyberbullying, took away everything, you'd still have a kid who spend nine hours watching cats on skateboards on YouTube, right? It's nothing, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, not inappropriate, nothing illegal. It's just a bad use of their time, right? So we can't change the technology. We have to teach people how to use technology sensibly, right? So what we've got to do is teach children that technology is like food. So from the point of view, there's good technology and there's bad technology. You can't eat 15 donuts a day and expect to be healthy. You have to have veg, carbohydrates, fats, these sorts of things. And it's like a diet. And, you know, you can't live life without a donut either. You're going to have to have that too. So you're trying to create a healthy relationship with technology where we use technology on our terms. The technology doesn't use us, use us on its terms, right? So the idea that we get seduced by algorithms or we get seduced to being um, kind of spending more time and getting into sinkholes and echo chambers and getting obsessed with certain things and certain other things. The difficulty is that that's about our usage. We have to regulate our own desire. And what I'd be saying to, to people is to, to be able to regularly check where am I at with social media at the moment? Am I overdoing it? Am I underusing it? Am I obsessing about it? Is it getting in on me? Am I using it to make my life more productive? Is it using me to torment myself? That's where we need to teach children to develop a good relationship with technology. It's the way, you know, if children are eating ice cream and they come in and say, can I have some more? You say no, because you know, they're going to get sick if they eat so much. So we regulate it for them and we have to teach them how to self-regulate. And you're hoping by the time they're an adult, they'll know how much is enough. And again, with technology, same thing, you know, how is it making you feel, you know, getting involved in, in the sinkhole of TikToks and, and even COVID, you know, with the COVID numbers, we get stuck into reading one article after another, after another, about lockdowns and this and that. And, and, you know, before you know it, 20 minutes into it, you're like, well, that's Christmas gone. That's it. Forget about it. It's not happening. You know, the idea is we have to be able to step back and self-regulate and children don't have that capacity. So as the adults in the room, we have to teach them how to do that. Most of that comes from role modeling. You know, there's no point in you saying, come off that technology if you're stuck on social media 24 seven. Do you know what I mean? From the point of view, it's like saying, you have your porridge and I'll have a packet of crisps. Not gonna work. You know, you have to role model it, unfortunately. But it is teaching them about time well spent versus time spent. It's about using it wisely rather than not using it at all. Does that make sense? Yeah, thanks, Coleman. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Roisin? Well, I think there isn't much point in doing this if we're not going to be completely honest and real. And the reality is because we're living in such uncertain times, we've never come across this um, situation before. I think it has become, it has way, way um, outshone COVID. COVID to me personally is a walk in the park compared to this. And I have been obsessed with reading every single thing I know there's a lot of us are in the same exact same position. We've become obsessed with Micah, how to resolve it. We read every single newspaper, media, cutting, every um, release of every video, every comment. And I mean, I thankfully I pulled myself away in the last three or four weeks from it. I said I was going to do that for months and months and months and I never did. I, I called it the Micah vortex. So every night I would go to sleep and I would think, no, 
tomorrow I'm not going to be obsessive about it. I'm not going to be answering phone calls or talking to people about it all the time in an obsessive way. Tomorrow I'm going to start. And I promised my husband and I promised my mom and I promised my family I wasn't going to do that anymore. But every morning I would wake up and I could fuck back into the mega vortex all the time thinking about Julia and thinking about Blake and thinking about my husband, Sean, and knowing that my mental health and this was going to affect them all, that I was slipping down the slippery slope and I couldn't pull myself out of this micro vortex. But I believe that we are, there are many, many, many of us like that in that situation where it's so hard to pull yourself out of that situation. We know we should pull ourselves out of it, but I don't know how to explain it or what to... I, th I think knowing what we should do and doing it are very different things. And I think that's be reasonable around, you know, uh, self-regulation is aspirational. None of us are like that all the time. But Roshan, I'll tell you one issue around one story I, I remember hearing a number of years ago now, and it, it really hurt when I heard this mum talk about this story. And she had a young girl who had uh, an inoperable tumour uh, and she became obsessed trying to find a solution for this tumor. And she researched every paper. She rang every surgeon. She was flying here, flying there, crossing here. And the, the girl died before the, the tumor was operable. But I remember her speaking to me and saying, I spent all the time researching when I should have been playing with her. You know, and again, I think from the point of view of the idea that we are doing good in terms of trying to find an answer to something, but actually spending some time with your children and them having you and making a fort with the cushions and the couch or having a laugh or, you know, making a joke or being the butt of a joke or whatever. They're the things that they'll remember much more than mum's you know, plight to find the answer. I, I always, people say to you, uh, you're a parenting expert. I, I'm not a parenting expert. I've done 25 years seeing the, the, the world through the eyes of children. And I try and tell adults how to see it through their eyes. The time spent with us that is fun, that is real, that is true, that is authentic. Stuff is gold dust in terms of their self-worth, self-value, their, you know, resilience. That's the stuff that makes them resilient. It isn't the stuff that we do for them, it's the stuff we do with them. And I just think, you know, in a time that's so preoccupying, it is something that's, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure none of us kind of go to the grave saying, I wish I went to more meetings. You know, I think there is a bit of trying to, to, to prioritize that and almost coordinate off and almost protect yourself. If you know the vortex is alluring and it sucks you in. You almost have to, you know, deny yourself access to it and say exactly what you're doing, which is I'm cutting this off for a while. I need my own time. And of course, campaigns need you and people can't give up. But you have to be able to hand over the baton to somebody else for a while and saying, I'm going to replenish now. I'll be back in a fortnight, but you need to take this on for me uh, and I need to do the the next two weeks for my family or I need to do this for my self or for my daughter that investment will pay dividend in terms of your children's memory of the event and your own kind of sustainability you know nobody can train 24 7 even the most elite athletes in the world need to rest uh, and you know a muscle won't grow without it being rested if that makes sense and so you need to build that in too uh, and i really think like that 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 four to seven thing is sounds simple but it is a really helpful way of trying to keep yourself on the straight and narrow if that makes any sense guys time is making a fool of us unfortunately but um 
is there any kind of closing remarks or anything that you'd kind of just to hear the stories and the idea of having answers, you know, uh, as Aidan said, if I had that book written, I'd be a wealthy man. But the idea of this is, you know, they say COVID is a one in a hundred year event. You know, your experience of this mica crisis is like, I, I don't have a comparable example where this has happened elsewhere to other communities. The idea that you're suffering as a community is really difficult because as you said, Roshin, finding that person who's not affected to try and help us through is almost, they don't exist. But what does come through is your togetherness as a community. And, and again, I would say to you, that is your children feed off that. They feed off the togetherness, the, the community spirit. They, like these are things that are so undervalued from the point of view of that power of that, even that energy and that notion of trying to do the right thing and doing it together and, and being there for each other. They'll, that will have a huge impact on how this impacts on them. They will, of course, remember the crumbling walls and the demolitions, but they'll also remember that community of people coming together. And that's a value system that will stay with them for a very, very long time. Um, and I just feel uh, I tip my hat to you, you know, all of you. It sounds horrendous. And I, I, I genuinely had no idea it was going on so long. You know, I think um, uh, Paddy probably in 2020 brought it to my attention. Didn't even know it was happening before that. But I think people need to to listen uh, and we need to come together and try and support you in any way we can. And I hope this session or this hour has been in any way helpful as well. Anzine, you wanted to say something? All right. Uh, Coleman, throughout tonight, you know, you keep talking about focusing on the end result and the end in sight and all the rest of it, right? For us as MICA families, that has been the great difficulty that we have had. Our government hasn't given us an end date. Every time we get an end date, it's kicked further down the line, right? I know that I could prepare my children so well if I could say, look, on whatever, whatever date, this is going to happen. I can't do this. I've been trying to access the scheme for two years. I am now sitting and I'm waiting in our government to deliver an answer. We were given how many dates now, Patty will be able to fill you in. So it's continuously kicked down the road and the anxiety is prolonged as a result of that, right? And for me personally, my house is an average-sized home. I don't even know how much I'm going to have to come up with to actually ensure that the rebuild can actually occur. I worry that I'm going to pass my house, live in rental accommodation for the rest of my days because I'm not going to, the schema is just going to be put in the long finger for eternity. And that's what it feels like for me at this minute. But, you know, I have spent a full decade of my life with this shadow hanging over me and I do not see an end in sight. Yes, Paddy, you're saying? Yeah, I'm the same as Angelina there. At, uh, listen, I've been on the working group to our government in June. And in June, I was telling them some of the most horrific stories. I'm telling them this needs urgency. And there's emergency accommodation needed for some houses and the whole shebang. Listen, our government and the city don't, block, don't worry about it, rural Ireland. They don't really care about them up there. That has to change. And I hope it does change. And I hope they give us an answer. And I hope it was right. But before I go, I'd like to thank you as well. Hey, because see that what you said about uh, getting to the children, more or less. Let them know that we're in this together. I believe in you. They're, 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 they're great. They're, they're great traits to be pushing on to them. Um, mm. Thanks for that. No problem. And one thing I will say to you guys is there's very few things last step forever. They, they feel like they lasted eternity. But in terms of when you're trying to help, the, help your children through a point of distress, and I think, Aidan, for yourself, this is probably important too, this feeling won't last forever. 
it will pass. It, it might be in two hours time. It might be in 20 minutes time. It might be in 10 minutes time. And yes, it may happen again. But like if we think about the I think I'm a celebrity started last night, isn't it? And when there are people are in that snake box or there's rats climbing at their feet or whatever it is, the thing that gets them through it is saying only 30 seconds left, every 15 seconds left, every 10 seconds. So the definitive end makes something surmountable. It makes it survivable. And if there is anyone who happens to be listening from government, and we've had three government officials on this podcast over the time, I want you to give these people, these families and these children a definitive. They need it in order to manage the anxiety that they're going through, to manage the the eternity of anxiety and we need to stop the hum you know the hum of anxiety is is taking its toll on these children and these families and if anyone is listening out there who can do anything to help anyone uh, get a definitive date to put an end to what you guys are experiencing i certainly will, will do my best to do that and if i will i'll say it here uh, live on air if there is anything i can do for the young people rushing in your school or if you want to have a chat or if there's any sort of a Zoom session that I can do, I'd be more than happy to to have a chat if you want somebody from the outside who is Micah Clueless. Well, I'm less Micah Clueless now than I was an hour ago, but um, I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for your honesty, for your insights and for your time. And yeah, listen, we'll uh, hopefully get this loud and proud across the globe and, and try and get some movement. But for our government, I hope you're listening in and we can do something for these communities. And for everyone who's listening today, I'd like to say, take care, bye for now, and mind yourself.